0: Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. In our last lesson, we are examining the account of Paul's conversion. His Jewish name is Saul. We only got as far as the Lord Jesus confronting him on the Damascus Road while he was on his way to arrest every Christian he could get his hands on. He had left Jerusalem for the northern city of Damascus with other men that were committed to help Saul persecute the church. On the way, the Lord knocked him to the ground along with all of his companions and exposed the fact that he was fighting against God. Then to his utter shock and horror, the God who was confronting him was Jesus, the true Messiah. After that divine encounter was over, it probably took a while for the men to recover from the intense shock of the Holy Spirit's convicting and confronting presence. Saul's companions were speechless, and when he got off the ground, he was overwhelmed with the fact that the glory of Christ had blinded him. This meant that this proud religious man had to be led by the hand into Damascus as he stumbled with his head downcast and his heart forlorn the Lord eventually came to Saul in a vision and showed him that a man named Ananias would pray for him to receive his sight and be baptized in the Holy Spirit. At first, Ananias was apprehensive to go because of the terrible reputation associated with Saul and his aggressive persecution of the saints in Jerusalem and Samaria. The Lord responded to Ananias' doubt with a stern go, and the matter was settled, and the disciple obeyed the command and went, and this is where we left off in our last lesson. Now let's begin with verses 17 through 19. Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. For a person to become a follower of Jesus, it only takes the length of a prayer. But getting a person to that point can be a long, arduous journey filled with much pain and suffering. The Lord had prepared the man for Ananias to lead him to salvation, so all Ananias had to do was to obey the voice of the Lord and go. I can say from experience that it's wonderful to step into a situation where the sinner is aching to be forgiven and to run into the Savior's arms. This is basically what happened with Ananias and Saul. It was easy to lead Saul to salvation, but not everyone is saved in such a simple way. The Lord had shown Ananias in a vision that he had confronted Saul on the Damascus road so that when he entered the home where Saul was staying, he could with simple, humble authority speak to the man. No convincing was needed. Jesus did an excellent job of doing that. Everything that happened was confirmation after confirmation that what was happening to Saul had come directly from God. The Now former Pharisee would have a long list of events that led up to his conversion, and these would be like stones of remembrances that marked his life so that in times of doubt he could remain faithful. It didn't take long for Saul to be so thoroughly convinced of who Jesus is that he immediately began proclaiming these truths to others. This is the biblical faith, and Paul's conversion is only a normal conversion, just like everyone should have. I'm not saying that they must happen in the same way as it did with Saul, being knocked to the ground and blinded for a time. When Saul repented and gave his life to Christ, he had the normal Christian experience, which is the radical transformation of a life. This is biblical salvation, and it's expressed through gratitude, the pursuit of holiness, and an excitement to tell others what the Lord has done. May we see a revival of biblical salvations, not American ones that Tozer said it would take us over a hundred years to recover from, but biblical ones that make men and women act and live like Paul. There were three things that Ananias was to do in coming to Saul. The first two are clearly spoken, while the third is implied and makes total sense given the need and situation. The first two things Ananias was to do was to be done through prayer. Now, isn't this a good lesson that the greatest work we can do is to pray and that more time must be given to prayer if we want to see greater results through our life and ministry? The first thing Ananias prayed for was that Saul's sight would be immediately restored and it miraculously was in such a way that Saul described it as something like scales falling from his eyes. This is how Saul explained what he experienced. And here again, it was done in such a way as to prove to him That this was all from God. Now we have another good lesson about prayer. That prayer is the means to break through the darkness of people's lives so that the light of the gospel can burst forth in transforming grace. We suffer a lot more than we understand when we are prayerless or little in prayer. The Holy Spirit's power is withheld from us as a result. Grace is kept from us, and the fruit of the Spirit can't grow in us like it should. Through prayerlessness, we leave family and friends without the need being fulfilled that they would otherwise receive from God, because we refuse to be much in prayer. Prayerlessness is the principal reason why revival is kept from the church, and it keeps the power of the Holy Spirit from flowing through the church to bring a harvest of souls. The second thing that Ananias prayed was for Saul to be immediately baptized in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say in this account that Saul spoke with other tongues, and it's unnecessary for the account to make this point. Precedence has already been established in the book of Acts that speaking in other tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. As a result, it's not necessary for every account of people being baptized in the Spirit for it to say that they spoke in other tongues. Without the outward or physical manifestations of tongues as the initial evidence, The baptism in the Holy Spirit is totally subjective because there would be no way to know if people did or did not receive it. How would anyone know that they received the gift if there wasn't an obvious manifestation? All those naysayers that claim that the baptism in the Holy Spirit ended with the death of the apostles don't have a single verse to base their criticism upon. They have no biblical basis to defend their theological error. When people choose doubt over faith, they get what they want, which is nothing but doubt. Then there's no amount of evidence that will convince them of anything they have doubt over. The problem really isn't with the biblical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but with people refusing to believe what the Word of God clearly teaches on the matter. I have seen people refuse every evidence you set before them, and at the same time, they can't offer a single verse to defend their stance. This is willful unbelief, and it is a terrible bondage. The third thing Ananias did was to teach Saul the truth about Jesus, and this opened the door for Saul to meet other believers before he had to flee the city to save his life. It appears that the very first thing Saul did after giving his life to Christ was to be baptized in water as a public testimony that he had genuinely become a follower of Messiah. After three days of not eating or drinking, you would think that he would first want to meet these physical needs. The fierce conviction that had gripped him affected him body, soul, and spirit and compelled him to make things right with God as fast as possible and as thoroughly as possible. Water baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as Jesus taught, was the first thing he did to prove the authenticity of his conversion. He didn't do this to be saved, since water baptism can't save a single soul. Saul wanted it to be known that he had abandoned his life as a Pharisee that was persecuting the church and had now become a follower of the one he had been aggressively persecuting. To persecute the people of God is to persecute God. And Saul realized this after his divine confrontation. After being baptized in water, Saul ate to gain his strength. Then he began meeting with some disciples in Damascus to get a firm understanding about Jesus, the promised Messiah. Saul was a man that was well-educated in the Old Testament scriptures. And it would be in these that he wanted to establish his newfound faith. If what happened on the Damascus road was real and from God, then it would be clearly defended by the word of God. If it went against God's word, then he would have sure proof that what he experienced was a demonic trick. We know the truth, that Saul had a confrontation with Almighty God in the face of Jesus. As he dug into the Old Testament to see if Jesus was the Messiah, he would gain a plethora of knowledge that would eventually come out in the epistles he wrote. We are told in verse 19 that Saul spent several days in Damascus talking with the disciples, but we don't know how long he actually stayed there. Verses 20-24 through 24 make it sound like he had spent many days in Damascus preaching the gospel in the synagogues until he was forced to flee for his life because some Jews wanted to kill him. I imagine that some of the disciples were afraid that this was an elaborate trap and kept their distance from Saul. Even those who talked with him may have had such fears. But they needed to believe that God makes new creatures in Christ, and Saul wasn't beyond the divine remedy. Not only did Saul get baptized in water immediately after being saved, healed, and baptized in the Holy Spirit, but verse 20 gives us some more evidence that salvation had truly come to him. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a biblical expression that salvation has come to a soul. Before Saul was saved, he was probably an angry, frustrated man living a religion where he never thought he was good enough and always having to see what command or sacrifice he needed to do for each new situation. Such legalism is miserable and exhausting. To never feel that you are good enough, that you are truly forgiven, that there are other commands you need to be mindful of while you don't neglect the ones you are already presently doing. And then to be forgiven by God, not through sacrifices or religious acts, but through the sheer mercy of God, gives joy unspeakable. To be forgiven of all of our sins and all the motives behind all the sins that we have committed is liberating. And only those who have tasted of God's sweet forgiveness know the joy and liberty it gives. Because Saul was so well-versed in Scripture, once the spiritual scales fell from his eyes, he could begin to see Jesus throughout the Word of God. As he pulled from the warehouse of knowledge that he had accumulated, he would have been very effective in presenting the gospel and proving that Jesus is the Christ. This is one reason why people wanted to kill Saul after his conversion, because they couldn't stand against his arguments, but they didn't want the salvation he offered them in Jesus. How we need this kind of passion to share Jesus with others in the church today. In the Jesus revolution that I was saved in, the evangelism was astounding. It wasn't programs like evangelism explosion that when the event is over, the people don't do anything more with it. This was the joy of salvation coming out of the lives of those who had been radically saved. This is the natural response to the free gift of salvation that people receive, where they want others to know and experience the joy of salvation. The response of the people in Damascus to Saul's conversion is interesting. We are told in verse 21, All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Saul was infamous among the disciples, intimidating among the populace, but a hero among his fellow religious Jews. That Saul had become a follower of Jesus must have been the talk of the town. And in Christian circles, they wondered if it was real. Yet those who heard him were astonished at the wisdom and the anointing that came from him. It wouldn't take long after listening to him to know that this wasn't a well-staged play, but was truth coming from a man who sincerely believed what he was preaching. I think that verse 22 is very interesting. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. What did Saul grow in power in? And how did he grow in that power? The answer to these two questions will reveal to us a lot about the biblical faith and what it should look like in each of us. The power he grew in was twofold, with the second being more important than the first. First, he grew in knowledge of the Word and how it wonderfully reveals that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Saul's extensive biblical knowledge helped him here, and since the scales of unbelief had been removed, he was seeing the Word of God correctly. Unbelief and false doctrine are like scales that covered Saul's eyes, and I imagine that he understood the spiritual correlation to his physical malady. Once those spiritual scales were removed in Christ, he could finally see Jesus in all His glory and divinity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses the imagery of a veil, but the idea is the same as with scales over the eyes. He wrote in verses 13-16, through 16, We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds are made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. This is exactly what happened with Saul. Only in Christ is the veil removed, so that we can understand the truth and see Jesus clearly. In verses 23 and 24, persecution begins to break out against Saul because he is now considered a very dangerous man, and the fact that he was being hunted gave strong evidence that he was a genuine follower of Messiah. Dr. Luke recorded, After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Their anger at what they considered a traitor to the Jewish faith was intense and murder was in their hearts. They were constantly on the watch for him, predominantly at the city gates because if he left the city, he would have to take one of the major gates depending on where he was going. Verse 25 tells us, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall." Those seeking his life didn't know that Saul had escaped or where he had escaped to. We aren't told anything else about Saul's escape or who traveled with him. From verse 26, we are told that his destination was ultimately Jerusalem, where he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. I think the fear of Saul was also upon the apostles at this time. It's like I said earlier, many disciples didn't trust Saul. Though I can understand why, I can't agree with their actions, for they weren't walking in faith and the love of Christ. Things like this get all the more complicated when you have families, for if a husband is thrown into prison, the wife and children would suffer greatly. Yet true love makes us vulnerable, even though there's always the possibility of a Judas in our midst that will eventually betray us. Betrayal always hurts because it's a trust that's been broken. It's when someone delivers or exposes us to an enemy by treachery or disloyalty. Jesus had his Judas, I have had mine, and many of you have also been betrayed, such as in the case of marriage and divorce. The pain of betrayal is always intense, such as when a spouse becomes an adulterer. With this in mind, we can understand why they acted as what they did, but we still can't justify it. There was a man who understood the reality of the new birth, and we see this in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and now in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement or son of consolation, saw the evidence of Saul's salvation. He was willing to help him gain access to the apostles, so that Saul could learn from some eyewitnesses of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Messiah. This was very important for the spiritual growth of Saul. The evidence Barnabas gave for Saul's conversion was a divine encounter he had with Jesus and how he had fearlessly preached in the name of Jesus. There were certainly many other expressions that salvation had come to Saul, but these two offered very strong evidence that the once persecutor had turned to Christ and become a follower. Then in verse 28 we read, So Saul stayed with them, moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Luke is presenting to us the story, but not an exact timeline. Verse 26 states that when he came to Jerusalem, which doesn't mean that Jerusalem was his destination immediately after leaving Damascus. In Galatians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20, Paul gives a more exact account of what happened after he left Damascus. He wrote, But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing is no lie. This tells that Saul didn't immediately go to the apostles in Jerusalem, but went into Arabia, probably through a divine command. One purpose for this was that Saul didn't want people to believe that he was commissioned by the apostles or other church leaders, but was going to be sent by God. Though he would learn many invaluable truths from fellow disciples, he wanted to learn the truth from the Word of God and the relationship he was developing with the Savior. It appears from Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, that Paul was only able to see Peter and James when he went to Jerusalem, with James being the head of the church in that city, not Peter. During this time in Jerusalem, we are told in verses 29 and 30 that he talked and debated with Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, it's interesting that Saul was ministering to Grecian Jews since it was members of one of their synagogues that was behind the murder of Stephen. The idea that they were Grecian Jews is that they were born to descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but lived outside of Israel. They were referred to as the Diaspora. Greek was their principal language. They use the Septuagint in their synagogue, which is the Greek Old Testament, and they retain those aspects of the Greek culture that weren't contrary to the Jewish faith. We see Saul's calling as an apostle to the Gentiles unfolding as he was gravitating towards ministering to Grecian Jews. On much of Paul's missionary journeys, he would first speak in the synagogues before reaching out to the Gentiles. Saul was being prepared for the mission field, and even the rejection he experienced in Damascus and by the Grecian Jews in Jerusalem were part of his training. Some Jews would be saved through his ministry, but the vast majority of Jews would reject Jesus and the message of salvation that came by grace through faith. After it was found out that the Jews were trying to kill Paul, the brothers took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. There are two towns called Caesarea, One was a coastal town, and the other one was called Caesarea Philippi, which is near Mount Lebanon. To distinguish between the two towns, the one by the sea is merely called Caesarea, while the other is called Caesarea Philippi. Saul probably sailed north for Tarsus out of Caesarea, with the brothers thinking that it would be safer for him to be in his old hometown. Saul's story to this point ends at verse 30, and after this, we will call him by his Greek name, Paul. Verse 31 concludes this portion of Luke's narrative and indirectly reveals an interesting fact about Paul. The verse reads, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Once Saul was removed from the situation, the persecution stopped, which reveals that Saul was the driving force behind the outbreak of persecution that happened after the murder of Stephen. After Saul had converted to Christ, he became the principal target the religious Jews were wanting to silence. My guess is that Saul had become so effective in preaching that Jesus is the Messiah that the religious elite were afraid of the damage he would do to the Jews in Jerusalem. Once Saul was gone, the persecution died down because there wasn't anyone with a strong enough personality to take up the persecution. This doesn't mean that there weren't individual accounts of persecution where converts were rejected by family and friends, just that there wasn't a persecution sanctioned by the Sanhedrin to imprison and murder believers. This verse gives us another snapshot of the life of the early church in Jerusalem after this bout of persecution ended. There are five points in verse 31 about the life of the church at this time. The first is that the church had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. When we looked at the life and martyrdom of Stephen, which began the persecution during this interval, disciples fled Jerusalem to other parts of Israel, and some even going into Samaria. Given the ancient hostility between Jews and Samaritans, believers there had a time of harvest, such as we saw with the revival where Philip was powerfully used. As persecution spread through Jerusalem and Israel, Saul must have taken it into Samaria, where there may have been a large number of disciples. My guess is that the Samaritans didn't cooperate with the religious elite in Jerusalem that was overseeing the persecution, but those persecuting the disciples went as far as they could and had many arrested. Once the persecution stopped because Saul was no longer there to give order to their madness, there was peace, and this peace allowed the saints to be strengthened, which is the second point. How the strength came wasn't from the time of peace, though that helped but from the encouragement the Holy Spirit gave through His manifest presence being in the church when they met together. And this is the third point. The fourth point is that the time of peace and encouragement helped the church to grow numerically. And the final point is that they lived in the fear of God, which is a very good thing to do, and this is something that the church at large in our day isn't living out. Much had happened to help them mature to the point of living in the fear of God, which isn't a slavish fear, as if people are waiting for God to zap them with a bolt of lightning for the slightest infraction. This was the fear of God that's central to loving God correctly and supremely, where we don't want to sin against Him because we love and adore Him. Moving on to verse 32, we read, As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints at Lydda. Here's another proof that Peter wasn't the head of the church in Jerusalem, but was an itinerant preacher throughout Israel. Since the persecution had ended for a time, Peter went out preaching, and the account we are going to look at took place in the village of Lydda, that wasn't far from Joppa and was near the Mediterranean Sea. Peter appears to be traveling around to strengthen the saints and to win the loss to Christ. In verse 33, Peter found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. In verse 34, Peter said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Take care of your mat Immediately Aeneas got up. Peter was putting into practice what he learned from Jesus. Now there's a smart thing to do. There's a major difference, though, in how Jesus performed miracles and how his disciples do, even into our day. Jesus healed through his own inherent power as God, which is limitless. No mere mortal or angel has such power. Peter didn't have the power in himself to heal the man. So he proclaimed that Jesus had healed the man, or we could say that Peter healed the man through Jesus and the power of his name. There's never been a divine healing that came from an individual. Miracles are done by God alone, but he uses people who choose to have faith in him and his promises. Why did Peter have Aeneas pick up his mat and walk? Well, possibly because that's what Jesus told many people to do after he healed them. It may be that picking up his mat was an act of faith and the Lord responded both to the faith of Peter and Aeneas. Whatever the case may be, we know that faith had to be an operation for the miraculous to take place. Verse 35 makes a very important point. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Miracles don't save people, only Jesus saves. But they point to the Savior so that people might be saved. This has happened thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times right into our very day. When bona fide miracles happen, people get saved because they are convinced that God is real and his name is Jesus. Here's the huge tragedy among those who reject the supernatural, who make the claim that the days of miracles is over without having any biblical evidence to back up that claim. By rejecting the supernatural, they have effectively helped the devil keep people in sin. That's a disturbing point. If miracles help some people come to Christ, what happens when people refuse to believe that God still does miracles? They effectively keep some people from salvation. When the church doesn't operate in the supernatural, the power for evangelism is withheld from the church. When the church finds herself powerless, the answer isn't to say that God doesn't heal or do miracles, which only perpetuates their spiritual deadness. Instead, the saints should get on their faces in heartfelt repentance for their unbelief and lack of Holy Spirit fire, and then cry out for a fresh Pentecost where the Lord will restore his power to the church. How sad it is that whole portions of the professing church has rejected the biblical truth about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and miracles. Unbelief leaves people spiritually barren without supernatural power to do God's work God's way. Now's not the time to forsake Pentecost, but to fully embrace it and live it out according to God's word. Just as the religious elite attack Christ and his church, so there are those who attack the true church that believe the clear teaching in Scripture that Pentecost is for today and that we desperately need it right now. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihp. M-I-N-I-S-T-R-Y dot com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Under the water. And the thirst no more so come wash in the river Come drink your fill Let healing waters A better way give